0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt
1: Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio. So do you feel bored? And is it is it bored that is your problem or the fear that you're bored? And so when we're afraid that we are bored or boring... Um, either bored because we're not doing anything interesting or that we are boring, which means others might not see us as interesting. What do you do with that feeling? I guess one of the big keys, and there's a great quote by Nathaniel Brandon about this, the first step toward change is awareness. So we probably ought to be more aware of what we're feeling, whether we're bored or are we afraid of being boring? Do we have some compelling, driven unexplored assumption in our head that says you shouldn't be boring or you're going to amount to nothing and then once we can become aware of that the second step is to accept it you're bored you've got you've got this state of uh you know you you really literally as she put it are irritably restless now and that might make it so you don't love your job you're struggling with your family you wonder why you married the person you married Maybe some of these things aren't telling you to just ditch all of these people or get rid of the job. Maybe boredom is simply saying it's time to make some adjustments that either make the game more exciting and interesting, or maybe you need to take some things in a different direction or just get better at what you have been avoiding. Powerful insights about each of us as human beings we can either become aware and or not, and we can either accept it or not. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. What I'm worried about when it comes to all this fake news is I think we're just getting lazy. We, we, are, we are just lazy consumers. And if, if we like the information to come to us, and with, with all this great technology, we don't even need to – we really don't need to do anything. It will be hand-delivered to our nice little device. And it'll even come up in a pop-up window to tell me wonderful, important, breaking news. Um, And then all of a sudden, we may not even check our sources. So you got to be careful. And one of the big pieces of advice I have is, I think there's a, it's a scary moment the minute you make it um about a financial enterprise and gain so the minute we're now going for money then truth might be impacted or the minute it's there's an entertainment value to the delivery of the truth so we we not only have to read and study but if if it's not entertaining you don't want that information isn't it isn't it interesting that uh Republicans have such great success on talk radio because I guess they can make it more entertaining and they can gather audiences. Um, but then there's not a lot of really conservative television talk show hosts at night. All of the talk show hosts at night tend to be more liberal. So liberals can make the television funnier so they can skew the information. Republicans can skew the information Uh, on the radio because somehow they have a corner on that market. But where does the truth lie? And it's got to be somewhere in between. Right. And and it can be in both sides. So become a connoisseur. Look through it and find your favorites and make sure it's diverse and question question. You should be you should almost have an inherent doubt about everything you read find the sourcing, figure out where it's coming from. And just because it, it aligns with what you believe in doesn't mean it's true. So we also have to figure a way to intentionally start question, questioning some of our own belief systems. It's a, lot to, it's a lot to do. And it's a lot to ask from people that may not even care in the first place. You know, as long as the Kardashians are good, life's good. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, again, we've, we've uh, had a couple uh, discussions over this last few days about poverty. And remember, yesterday we talked about um, how our brains, when you are poor, it creates stress. And stress then has you generally working out of a part of your brain called the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain, which isn't necessarily your highest reasoning. It's not your best executive kind of functioning brain. It's just survival brain. And when we're in the survival brain, we don't always make the best decisions. We don't always think big picture. We don't always solve the problems and and they tend to stick around. So the same is true when we think about the war on poverty. Maybe what we're doing is we're approaching it from our more reactive tendencies, our more reactive feelings. One of the things I love about, um, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the the LDS church that, um, you know, is the, the sponsor really in the end of this show because of Brigham Young University, is they're really amazing as a church at getting people off of welfare and a job and getting them back into the world. And they have... They they have—your church leader will come, your l- religious leader will come and meet with you, assess and find out why you are s- struggling in poverty. The church will even help to some degree to get you back on your feet. We have jobs programs. We have—we um, we just have a lot of ways to help people back on their feet. But the idea is at some point you want to be self-reliant. And I believe in every single human being in every heart— is a desire, a drive to be self-reliant, to be able to make it on their own. But then if we're stuck in poverty and we're not making the best decisions and we're caught up in that reactive fight or flight brain, we, we start spinning and we need somebody, something that can help maybe hold on to us and stop us from spinning, get us in a place where we can start succeeding. And once we start getting traction, then we can start making better decisions, making better turns. It's like when your wheels are stuck in the snow and you're spinning, until you get the traction, more acceleration doesn't get you out necessarily. It just gets you deeper in the hole. So we need to get the people that are struggling in poverty some traction, and we need to get them some guidance, some a guide literally on their side that can get them into a job and and start giving them – and we always think let's train them first. Let's give them the skills. Okay, but again, skills without a job isn't going to help you. If I have all the skills in the world and I'm, I'm in North Dakota and there's not a job for me in North Dakota, then my skills won't help me. If I have daycare and I'm in Oklahoma but I don't have a job, the daycare is not going to help me. Well, yeah, but that will help you go get a job. Well, if there's jobs. We've got to work on on some of the other solutions. And so think about you. How are you helping it? How are you handling it? Are you are you involved in helping the people around you to get uh, get a leg up and to get some strength? Are you talking to your politicians about it? Do you have some of the just typical mindsets or biases that we might have that those that are on the welfare rolls? They just don't. They're just lazy. If you believe that, you don't know enough people on welfare. Well, they're just all drug addicted. Not true. Not true. You got to get to know these people. You got to walk a little bit in their shoes and change your way of thinking. Because when we change our way of thinking, then we wouldn't vote for a politician that's going to just keep enabling people to stay poor, that's going to keep pushing ideas and policies that don't solve or, or end um, some of these, these problems, we've been at it for 60 years and $22 trillion, and it's still beating us down. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. There are a few tricks uh, to emotional management that I think can help you take control of this fight-or-flight part of your brain. The fight-or-flight part of your brain, remember, is it's there to protect you. But as we learned, the protection is just as much for your physiology, your body, as it is for your psychology or your identity. So our body, our our fight or flight instincts will kick in just as strong and just as aggressively for the need to protect. You know, don't make fun of my high school, as it will for, um, you know, I'm going to kill you. It's they're just they're threats. And it's, it's not like the body can always distinguish, especially because the amygdala is so wired to fight or flight instantly. So some rules that we teach in my program, um, again, and, and uh, Dr. Kaplan hit it perfectly, one of them is just to start noticing your thinking. The more aware you are and the more aware we all become of our own thinking and how we react to certain events, how we see certain things, the more abilities we have to handle these events. Again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that I have issues, but as soon as I know that, boy, I'm really sensitive to certain things. For example, I know a bigger trigger for me is, um, is more when my kids, like, question my authority. And when they question my authority, that's more likely to set me off than—or um, my, ex- my experience than almost anything else they can do. They can call me a name, they can say whatever they want, but when, you know, when I say something like, you know what, okay, time for bed, you guys got to go to bed, and they're like, well, mom said we didn't have to. Boy, what has your mom got to do with this? And off we go. So w- what triggers you? We want to start to identify what the triggers are, and, and generally I, I've found that we tend to be triggered by any time we question if we're capable if you're questioning my capability, if you're questioning if i'm loved if i if I feel what you're doing is attacking me in a way that I feel unlovable or when I feel unsafe, those tend to be the three biggest triggers I found um, lack of safety, lack of capability, like I'm just not cutting it anymore, or lack of lovability. So think about it, what triggers you to you know to go off what what's the thing that most pushes you to just walk out? of a discussion with your wife. Is it that every time she brings something up, do you feel like she's questioning if you're capable, if you're good enough to do this kind of stuff? Do you question if you're loved? Or do you question um, you know, if you're going to be safe, physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially? So once you start to become more aware, then you can start to understand how your triggers go off and what works for you. I mean, I found a lot of times, just breathing, taking a deep breath helps a lot to be able to manage my reactions. Um, another thing I found is a, a great tool is anything you can do to get into your what I call your higher brain. Um, uh, one fast way to do that by the way is math if If you would take a million and count down from one million by seventeens, I'm going to bet you won't fight about whatever your wife is bringing up. <laughs> Right. And one reason is because if you have to go into your high brain and start making sense of something that's more complicated, then all of a sudden you don't have time to just get into your low brain and fight or flight. One of the ways I do this, and there's a really interesting um, parallel to it in the court system. If you notice in courts, they have a lot of rules and a lot of uh Ways that you approach the bench, the ways that you, you're allowed to say what you want to say in the courtroom, they have so much structure and so many rules to, to uh, obey and so much just protocol for how you handle the courtroom that I think the protocol itself keeps the people from fighting or flighting and reacting to each other. I mean think about it you have people in the court system that truly do not like each other they hate each other but there's so much process that that is demanding their brain power otherwise they lose the case right they they'll get the judge mad at them so they follow the protocol and when you follow the protocol the process is nice and slow and methodical and the protocol keeps you from reacting overly reacting to each other in the courtroom. I found the same is true in our in our relationships. So we teach our couples when we're teaching them how to have a have to have a serious conversation that might normally set us off that there's some protocols we're going to follow. We're going to learn to recognize each other emotion each other's emotions. I call this getting real. Recognize the emotion, explore the story behind it. Behind every emotion there's a story. And if I can let the person that's, I'm, that we're, I'm struggling with, that I'm arguing with, share their story without me jumping in and without me reacting to their emotion, and I explore their story, I'll be able to hear where they're really starving. Deep down in the story, you'll hear where they're really being affected. You'll hear if they have a lovable issue, if they have a capable issue, if they have a safety issue. I call that stuff the starve stuff. So we recognize their emotion. You seem upset. We explore the story. Tell me what's going on. And I attend to what they're saying. I really listen to where they're hurting. And then before I do all of those three things before I try to ever lift the conversation. And to lift the conversation, I try to do what I call it's a very simple rule that I call the 80-20 rule. I believe in every discussion you have with another human being, 80% of what they're saying you agree with. I agree that the world is complicated today. I agree that, uh, you know, we didn't take care of America like we should have. I admit that uh, we, you know, I've been part of the problem. I accept. I I affirm. And you just, you go with them wherever they are, where you can go with them. And then you share your side. And I have a different side. And then you can tell your side. And I don't think that we should, you know, make everybody feel unsafe by saying certain things politically. Does that make sense? So we recognize emotion, we explore, we attend, and we lift conversations. They're skills. And they're skills you can learn. I'm teaching them every day. And you know what? You learn, you learn to do it. This stuff works. Um it's not a silver bullet, but it's a skill. And you can learn to do it. And the more you do it, the easier it gets, I think, for all of us. So great learnings, I think. Uh that's why we do the show. To give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of emotions. This is the Matt Townsend Show. come back, folks. What does Massachusetts, Hawaii, Vermont, Utah, and Connecticut all have in common? Well, in 2017, they were all rated the healthiest states in the union. On the other hand, West Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi are all in the south and are at the bottom of the list of healthiest states in the union. Why is this the case? Well, here to answer that question is uh, Dr. Jay Maddock. He's the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University. He previously served as the director of the University of Hawaii Public Health Program for eight years. Uh, Dr. Jay Maddock, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Good morning, Matt. Thank you.
1: You know this really it's always more complicated than it seems. I whenever I think of the south, I think they just have great food. That's why they're all why they're less healthy states, but you've you've been able to identify there's a variety of reasons that lead to their lower health status. Talk to us about what are the, some of the reasons about why the southern states are are so unhealthy.
2: Sure, you know, I think it's it's very interesting as we look uh, across the country because uh, county to county, we see big differences in health and it 's pretty dramatic it 's actually about um twenty year difference in lifespan from the shortest uh lifespan in the county to the longest and wow. so as we try to figure out you know you know what's causing that um we see a lot of differences in um in health behaviors and so you know when we look and say, what kills Americans? It tends to be smoking physical inactivity, and poor diet, I mean, about two-thirds of premature deaths related to those. And um, certainly the smoking rate is higher throughout the South, with uh, West Virginia and Kentucky being two of the highest. Um, we also see higher rates of obesity and diabetes uh, in these states. And, and so part of it is trying to figure out what? Why? Why would we see higher obesity and diabetes and smoking rates in, in those states?
1: Mm. And
2: it's, um,
1: it's, it's, that is amazing, though, 20 years difference. Some counties in the South versus count, some of those other states we, we listed, a 20-year difference in life expectancy. I mean, honestly, this is, this is, this is a big deal. We've got to figure <laughs> this out.
2: It's incredible, and you know, living in in Hawaii um, and in Massachusetts, growing up. Um you know, it, it, coming to Texas and saying, oh, you know, there's a five or six year lifespan between Texas and Hawaii, um, you know, what, what could be causing that? And it's, you know, something that was what really got me into this, this research as I had moved from Hawaii to Texas about three years ago.
1: Yeah. Talk about, I mean, so some of this has got to be access to care, right? It's got to be, are, are these states paying less for health care and, and, and making it less accessible? What's going on as far as just the institutions of health care there?
2: Yeah, you know, there's major shortages in primary care physicians in the south. If you look at kind of a a map of the U.S. and say where are primary health care physicians, they they tend to be really, really clustered in um, the northeastern part of the United States. And so um, places like Massachusetts, you'll see more than 200 um, primary care physicians per 100,000 people. And in places like Mississippi, there's less than 100, um, wow. you know, so it's about half. And so you got longer waiting times. And then in, in a lot of these states, you're dealing with the rural health, right? And so folks that live uh, a long way away from a city. And so there might be an hour or more travel just to see a physician. We have counties here in Texas where there's not one physician living in the entire county.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. It L- is. There's, and, and I guess is that um, – they, they just are choosing not to live there or, and they're not being, I guess, incentivized or drawn to live there.
2: Yeah. You know, I think you look at you look at salaries for physicians and they tend to be very um, different across the nation. And so when somebody comes to, say, Texas and they can work in Houston in the Texas Medical Center or they can work in a very small community in West Texas, the amount of, of income and lifestyle is going to be so different um, depending on those two choices.
1: Now it's an interesting thing because it doesn't. I mean, money is one thing, but Hawaii, for example, is rated as one of the healthiest in the nation. Um, but I'm not. Are they are they a rich state? It seems like they've got they've got their own issues of uh, you know accessibility and getting people off the you know out of out of their where they live and getting them to a healthcare facility.
2: Yeah, you know, it's, I chaired the Board of Health in the state of Hawaii, and especially on the neighbor islands, uh, access to care was, was uh, quite dramatic. We had to actually airlift folks in, um, you know, that had medical emergencies to Oahu yeah. uh, for care. But what you saw in Hawaii was actually much more on the primary prevention side. And so, um, you know, a state that really... Uh, took smoking seriously, and so back in 2006, um, smoking was banned in all indoor areas in um, businesses and workplaces in in Hawaii. And then just uh, two years ago, they increased the smoking age to 21. And so a state that's really said, you know, we're not going to pay um, all the costs related to smoking. We're going to be very progressive on the on the policy angle.
1: Hmm. Now, so being on these public health boards what percentage of of impact do they really have are they a big player in the health of their communities or are they just more you know appointed positions from some governor
2: yeah you know the the public health boards have kind of it depends on mixed kind of effects and how um how open you have a relationship with the legislature actually where we saw a lot more effectiveness was in our coalition work so the group we had called the Coalition for Tobacco-Free Hawaii, which was a voluntary group, um, but made up of people like the American Cancer Society, American Heart, the university, um, really came together as a voice for, um, you know, smart public health policies. And in Hawaii, we made a lot of inroads um, with that in terms of really influencing and educating uh, elected officials. Hmm.
1: It's, uh, it's, it is interesting to, to look at. Also, uh, when we talk about the South, it seems like North Carolina they they have some of the best medical facilities in the country, uh, with Duke and North Carolina, and and so um, is this about having having great you know educational opportunities in the healthcare field? Does that help? Because they don't seem to be the states listed in the South with the problem.
2: Yeah, you know, and North Carolina is an interesting one because it really is kind of uh, on the line between the South and um, the Mid-Atlantic, yeah. and so certainly they have the great health care. Um, there are major health disparities between, um, you know, parts of the East and then parts of Appalachia, which is in the western part of the state where you see, um, you know, the opioid epidemic being really bad. Um, and so North Carolina kind of has a mix depending on part of the state that you're in.
1: Hmm. What What should we do about this, Jay? I mean, we hear... Uh, it's almost every year on the show we'll we'll do another – they'll do a – someone will do a census about the healthiest states and the southern, those those five or so that are always listed in the south, they don't seem to be changing much. Um, and so is there anything that can be done,
2: really? Yeah, you know, I think there is. I mean, so what we did from – geez, starting back in 2000 through 2015 in Hawaii was we created a concentrated effort called the Healthy Hawaii Initiative, which was a partnership between the State Department of Health, the University of Hawaii, and the Department of Education. And we really said, let's take a comprehensive look at our state and what's affecting uh, health outcomes, and, and the major being the tobacco use, the physical activity, and the nutrition. And let's look at all the policies and environments and then also public education that we can work on. And so Hawaii, when I got there, was ranked about ninth. And then up until this past year when Massachusetts passed us for five years in a row, Hawaii was the healthiest state in the nation. So I think there, there are ways, but it takes kind of a concentrated effort um, within the states to do it.
1: Is it um, – do you normally see that it's the people that push it to happen or is it the government that pushes it down?
2: You know, it happens both ways. And so uh, certainly when the the people get together and work on it, that that can be the strongest. But we saw um, places, you know, a lot of, and that's one of the reasons these rankings are actually fairly important. So they did city, healthy city rankings. And a few years back, uh, Philadelphia was rated as the least healthy city in America. Hmm. And the mayor got upset. And so he said, we're not going to do this anymore. And so that really Made him uh, concentrate and focus on it, and Philadelphia is in the bottom of no one's rankings anymore. So they really made you know a nice difference in that city. And it, but it took the leadership um, to really make it happen.
1: Boy, that's great! Uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. Jay Maddock. He is the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University. He has served as the director of University of Hawaii's Public Health Program eight years and is internationally recognized for his research in social ecological approaches to increasing physical activity. Uh, Jay, when I look at it too, um, I mean, it's, it's one thing to, it's one thing, I guess, to like educate everybody on this, but you also have to make things accessible. You've got to have places for people to walk, activities for people to do. I mean, it seems like it gets fairly expensive.
2: You know, it doesn't have to be expensive. And so um, one of the big policies that we worked on in Hawaii was called Complete Streets. And what Complete Streets is, is just anytime you build a new road or you renovate a road, you consider all um, modes of users. So you consider pedestrians, you consider cyclists, and you consider motor vehicles. And so as this is new construction, um, you know, it doesn't really cost a lot of extra money to be able to do that. And it, it'll take a little bit of time, but it'll happen. Um, here at Texas A&M, we just launched a, um, a bike share program, which will have 4,000 uh, dockless bikes in the, in the fall. And um, the company, uh, Ofo, is actually uh, paying for it. There's a $35 a semester subscription fee for students, and then it's covered. And so these public-private partnerships are also a great way to be able to do these things without uh, much of a cost to the, the government of the state.
1: That's great. So they pay $35 a year or a month? A semester. A semester.
2: So 70 a year. And yeah. have access. That's great. As much as you want in the 4,000, you can find one anywhere. And yeah. then we tell people, you know, you don't need to buy a bike because they're, they're much cheaper this way. You don't need to worry about maintenance. You don't need to worry about somebody stealing it.
1: Overall, are we getting healthier? Is this, I mean, we hear these numbers and um, it's scary that one state could have a 20 year life expectancy longer than another. is. But overall, are we doing better?
2: That's a great question, Um, yes and no, and so um, we have been doing better and better um, for quite a long time. We've seen rates of cancer come down, we've seen rates of heart disease come down. Um, what's happening now is, you know, obesity has been rising, and so it looks like this generation will have um, shorter lifespans than the one before it. And then what's even more concerning is the opioid epidemic. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen this incredible increase in, in opioid overdose deaths, and we're seeing, um, especially among white women um, and, and in the South, a uh, reduction in life expectancy.
1: Wow. And yeah. how, do we, how do we do compared to other countries? Where are we? I mean, it seems like this is where we should be leading, but I'm sure we're
2: not. We're not. You know, we we pay more for health care um, than any other country in the world. And we finish somewhere in the 20s in terms of, of life expectancy and, and care. And so, you know, what I always tell people is that we, we don't invest enough in public health. we invest a lot in care, but, you know, if we can prevent people from getting sick, it's cheaper and we get a better result from it.
1: Did, did you see a difference when... You know, Obamacare was being instituted. Where it was more money being paid to, you know, public health and public health care at yes, that time? There
2: was a reduction in the, in the public health fund. Um, and, and so, you know, part of looking at this, and that's Obamacare, I think, did a lot of good things, but also came short in a lot of areas. And a lot of it was having that comprehensive look at um you know, at prevention across the nation. It looked a lot of getting people health insurance, which is extremely important, but it wasn't the entire picture. Hmm.
1: What, uh, so what advice would you give us, just anybody out there listening, wherever they are? You, you kept bringing up tobacco and physical health. What else, what else should we make sure that we are at least, you know, advocating for, pushing for in our communities to make sure we have healthier, healthier communities?
2: You know, I think a lot of it is is um, also looking at the environment that we live in. Um, and so we see higher rates of uh, air pollution uh, in a lot of the southern states. We tend to be, you know, high industrial areas here in Texas. Obviously, oil and gas is a huge industry, so also Louisiana. And so making sure we also have uh, clean environments. We saw a lot after Harvey um, coming in, in terms of Superfund sites, flooding and, and uh, coming into communities. That's another area that certainly we can make a difference. The South Tends to be disproportionately affected by heavy industry.
1: That's interesting, man. I mean, and and then um, I, I guess too, at some point, make make the city more walkable. So a lot of these cities in the South, I read in your article, just aren't walkable. They're they're not. They don't. They're not conducive to healthy living.
2: Yes. Yeah. And so you know, it was, it was interesting. I was actually in. Um, Winston-Salem uh, over the weekend, which, which rated uh, second from last in walkability. And it's a community that's really taking it seriously. And so they're actually closing one of the major highways into town for two years uh, to build a greenway and they're building uh, walkable trails all across um, the city. So, you know, these cities can make a change, and I think when they get it, when leadership gets it, um, it really can make a difference. Greenville, South Carolina is another example of a city that's built this incredible trail um, called the Swamp Rabbit Trail, and they're seeing you know differences. They're seeing conferences and business and everybody coming to the city because they've made it walkable. So I think there's a business case for a lot of these things, too.
1: No, oh, I do, too, and uh, we appreciate it, Jay. I think this is just great insight for all of us to know that there is stuff we can do, and the sooner the better— um, and we, we probably need to make sure we're pushing it from the bottom up as well as the top down. Jay Maddock is his name. Dr. Jay Maddock, again, is the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University, uh, walking us through why it is that some parts of the South are the least healthiest regions in the United States. Interesting, interesting insight. And by the way, it's not one type of, uh, you know, it's not one ethnicity. It's not one... Location—it's there's multiple causes, multiple effects, multiple issues going on. It's complex. But the idea that one part of this country would have 20 years less uh, to live because of where you were born and where you were raised—that's crazy, right? We'll continue the journey. Do what we can to uh, help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
1: Welcome back, friends. You know, it's not easy. And uh, if you've ever, I mean, it's can you imagine trying to stay healthy, just do what you've got to do to stay healthy. But what about... Uh, Living in a city where it they make it even harder to stay healthy. and you may not even recognize that like uh, the, the data showed that in Massachusetts, one in uh, there's five hundred and forty seven physicians for every hundred thousand people. And in the south, in those five states that are struggling in the south, there's eighty seven physicians for every one hundred thousand people. It's crazy. And so at some point, it's not enough to just only tell people, you know, you just got to be disciplined. Well, you can be the disciplined one in those areas. You totally can be, by the way. Um, but uh, there are some things that, that we all need to do to, be, to exercise a little more discipline in our own life. So think about your life. Where do you need to pick up a little bit more discipline? Where do you need to really get your act together a little bit more? And I want you to have an idea in your head because whether it's just watching less Netflix, exercising more, um, spending more time with your family, being disciplined to put your phone away, those are all things that each and every one of us could uh, and probably should be doing, right? Um, One of the things we we might want to do too is to um, choose to focus our firepower one of the things I found is if I keep trying to do everything and be disciplined everywhere, I mean discipline is a limited reserve. You have so much uh, energy and ability in you to do something, and some of the research shows that the, the later in the day, the harder and harder it gets for people to actually exercise more and more discipline. It might be easier, especially if you spend an entire day having to be disciplined, not getting mad at people, not being you know angry, not having blow ups, not eating that really good lunch. If you've been exercising discipline all day, you might know you might notice that the later it gets in the day, the harder this gets. So uh, instead of having five different things that every day you're trying to exercise your discipline on, what if we could just try to become more disciplined on one thing? a day. Let's try to just use as much of our firepower as we can on that one thing. And sometimes you may have noticed that like when you're using a garden hose, um, you put your thumb over the end of the hose and you kind of restrict it a little bit. And by restricting the hose, you can actually create a stronger stream and a more directed focus stream. That's, that's kind of what we need to do is there's power in restricting a little bit and focusing our, our uh, discipline to be able to handle something um, and, and to be able to take it on a little bit more in a focused way. Uh, there's a great book by Greg McKeon called Essentialism, another book by Sean Acor called The um, Happiness Advantage. Both are great books that have, that are now sharing all of the research about how to use – uh, how to create positive psychology in your life? How to be happier? Sean Achor talks about a rule called the twenty-second rule in his book, The Happiness Advantage, and that rule basically uh, helps you know people that waste time get out of it. They call it activation energy. You know, it takes energy to get a project or an activity started. It's just that little spark that everyone needs to have. But you don't need to always have a ton more discipline to do it. You just need to decrease the amount of activation energy that is required to start a task, right? So if I, for example, um, if I like watching television at night and I'm trying to stop watching television, then I need to increase the energy it would take me to watch television, so an example that Sean Acor gives is, well, what you ought to do is go put your remote control upstairs in your bedroom um, so and or the batteries upstairs in the bedroom and the remote control in your office. So if you want to watch TV, you now have to get up, walk to your office, go all the way upstairs, get your batteries, and then put your batteries in and then come back down and watch TV. And because that's so much activation energy, you're probably less likely to do it. And the reverse is true. If you want to get something done and make sure you are accomplishing tasks easier, then you've got to figure out a way to get that activity started and going within 20 seconds. So if you wanted to watch more TV, right, then you'd want to have the remote right near you as close as you can, as easy as you can. You'd want to spend all the energy to get your four remotes converted into one universal remote. Bada boom, bada ping, you're done. So that is called the 22nd rule. And um, you don't necessarily need a ton more discipline to do that. You do just need to make sure that we are focused and doing and making the the, what seemingly is difficult, make it a little easier to do. Uh, Another thing you could do is make sure that you have routines and rely heavily on your disciplined routines. So make traditions, make habits. If you want to make it easier to run in the morning, make sure that you have a routine of having your shoes right by your bed, maybe even go to bed and sleep in your jogging or your running clothes that you will be running in tomorrow, and then make a routine of how you're going to get up. And once you've kind of turned it into a habit or a routine or a pattern, you don't need to think about it every day. It's going to the pattern itself will operate on you. You can also evaluate your routines regularly and, and make stuff happen. There are ways, folks, that we each and every one of us can become a lot more disciplined if that's what we're seeking after. And, um, or we can sit back and just keep saying it's hard, it's really hard, and keep telling the story of how hard it is to exercise discipline, how hard it is to, uh, to do and be what you need to be. It's uh, – again, and I'm this isn't coming from a guy that is a seriously disciplined person, but I, I do have habits. I do have patterns. I do have routines. And when I start to realize that all I need is about 20 seconds to get something going, another thing is you don't even need to focus on doing the biggest thing. You could go choose what's the smallest thing I can do today to start to move my body more and exercise more. What's the least – thing I can do. And if you would just go do that least thing, you would actually probably be more inclined to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So again, it doesn't have to be the biggest things in the world. Sometimes it just has to be anything. And that's uh, one of the fastest keys, I think, for any of us to get a little bit more disciplined. Uh, Again, the two books are um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon and um, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acorn. Good stuff, folks. We'll continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and be more disciplined. With only one life to live, sometimes we get caught up with the idea that every moment of our life has to be the best moment. Licensed clinical social worker Diane Barth suggests that striving to be or have or do the best could be costing you the pleasure of the good enough moments sprinkled through our every day. She joined us not long ago to talk about five ways that good enough is exactly what we need. We started that interview by asking, why are, so, why are we so into chasing the best?
3: Well, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, we live in a very competitive society. We have this idea that to compete, you have to be the, to compete and be successful. You have to win and be the best, which is fine sometimes, but it's not always possible. And you can still enjoy, um, you know, you can enjoy things that you're doing even if you're not winning. Whatever that happens to
1: mean. Right. Is it? Is it um, – as you look at it, we, there, there are just as many good moments of life and, in fact, probably significantly more good moments of life if we could just relax and see them.
3: Oh, for sure. I mean, we've all had the experience where um, – I hope my son will forgive me. I'm going to use him as an example. <laughs> but he is a, an athlete, and he loves – uh, he, he's a rower and he loves rowing, he loves being on the water, he loves the uh, energy of the team, he loves everything about it and it is very hard for him to really appreciate that he doesn't have to win, you know, I'm sorry I should change that <clears throat> it used to be hard, he's gotten older and it's much easier for him now, but you you, you really don't have to win at that sport to to have a wonderful time at
1: it. Mm. I mean, because that's it. You don't have to be the best. My son's trying out for a football league this year or right now. And, you know, on the field, there's going to have five teams, and one team is the very best team that will go against all the best teams in the rest of the leagues. And the other four teams are just going to be really fun. <laughs>
3: exactly. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the best team could be having fun? Today? Right. Because the the reality is they will not be the best always. Yeah. They will lose. They will, you know, sometimes they won't play as well. You know, I talk about this in my blog. They, sometimes they won't play as well this week as they did last week. Mm-hmm. They won't play as well, you know, today as they might tomorrow. And wouldn't it be nice if they could be enjoying what they're doing while they're not necessarily doing it the best?
1: Is um, I can hear some in their heads saying, well, shouldn't we teach our kids to be the best instead of being good enough? I mean, but, but really, when you say good enough, good enough is just you're great. I mean, you're, you're there. You're in the game. Yeah, it's happening.
3: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that one of the problems with the whole striving for the best is that we're, what, we, what we're talking about, although we don't necessarily say it, is that we're striving to be perfect. Right. And that's just not humanly possible. So part of the, the real work, and it's work for, I think, almost anybody who lives in a competitive society, which we all do these days. But the, the work is to be able to say that, you know, I'm trying to do as well as I can do in this moment at this time, and, but I also want to really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, the other, the other thing is that I I love the the this quote from D.W. Winnicott who was a British psychoanalyst who used to say over and over again that um, being a perfect parent is really not the path to being a good parent.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: that actually being a good enough parent is much better than being the best parent because <laughs> you by being good enough. You're letting your child have room to grow, to maybe do things you can't do, yeah, to, yeah. to have space to be things that you're not. And, and to I experience
1: that, right? Sorry, uh, say to, that again. I was just going to say to experience. I mean, if all of us were the best parents, um, then it seems like we would create great kids, but they also wouldn't have experienced difficult parenting.
3: Exactly. And I don't think we would create great kids because I think we would create <clears> – <throat> we would create intimidated kids or kids who felt they could never be good enough for us yeah. or as good as us. I don't think that would make for great kids.
1: That's but, it's true.
3: But the other thing that you just said I think is really important is, is that if our kids don't have moments of feeling frustrated and disappointed and dissatisfied throughout their childhood, how are they going to deal with it when they get to be adults? Mm-hmm they They need those experiences to build the the muscles and the skills for dealing with those things, which are going to happen,
1: yeah, in your psychology today um, article, you bring up a really good point about the best doctor mm-hmm. may may not actually be the one you want right. Why is that explain that
3: well i was just, I was actually talking about this with some friends who are both doctors the other day and And one of the things is that first of all, the best doctor for me may not be the best doctor for you. Ah, right. So one thing is you have to figure out what kind of a doctor you need, what kind of a person you need. Who do you talk to most easily? Who can you ask questions to? But another thing is that, you know, we get these, these um, articles. I don't know if you all get them out there, but in New York, we get these articles in New York Magazine about um, who's the best doctor in the city, who's the best doctor in the country. And the problem with those best lists, is that often if you can get an appointment with one of these
1: doctors,
3: (laughs) you may not get more than two and a half minutes of conversation with them.
1: Yeah. And if you need more than that, boy, they aren't the best.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And most of us do need more than that.
1: Yeah. Right.
3: So sometimes the top surgeon in the country is not really going to give you the same attention and the same um, care. That somebody who is maybe, quote, unquote, not the best, but is thoughtful and interested in you and wants to work with you with whatever the problem is that you've got will give you.
1: Hmm. And I mean, I look at that, too, of a doctor that's maybe done, you know, maybe they're 55, 60. They're kind of wrapping up their practice. They've they're really good at what they do, but they may not have all the latest training or then you can go get the young buck that just got out. Of you know college, they just got all the latest and greatest, but they maybe just don't have the calm demeanor. It's just really so it's so it so so much of this is about if not just striving to find the best, but striving striving to find my what's good for me.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Good, and 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 then I guess um, then then you then you don't I guess have to stress. What does it do for me in the end? Yeah. By just having the good, it's just less stressful. Yeah. Boy. And it
3: gives you what you're looking for most often. I mean, if you, if I think that one of the things with this striving to be the best or have the best is, is that we stop paying attention to what what we actually need, mm-hmm. and so we we move towards ser- some sort of external uh, value system that may not have anything to do with what what is really going on for us. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, Brene Brown, uh, who I really like, has a has a thing where she talks about that. Um, you know, striving for the best is is in some ways also tr- striving for perfectionism, which she talks about a lot. And and she talks about that um, that perfectionism is not about self improvement or healthy achievement. It's about l- er, looking for approval and acceptance. Huh. Right. And I think that's true. A lot of times, when we're we, even if it's, we're looking for the best doctor, we think we're we're going to get someone who is going to make us, I don't know, acceptable or or better.
1: And I guess if if we're always dropping like the name of our doctor,
3: mm-hmm. then
1: then it is that we're kind of caught up in our comparing. Look, I mean, trying to use that as a as a stepping stone to look better.
4: Yes. Yes.
1: So I guess that's one of the signs. If really if the best is something you have to drive so people can see it, or you know, you always have to bring up so it's there, it's part of you, then you might be caught up into this perfection thing. Exactly. That again was Diane Barth and LCSW uh, walking us through how, you know, good enough. It's Sometimes it is better than best. and But it's not easy, is it? There's something about each of our brains, our heads that makes us think, well, I've got to be the very best. And then we even say you've got to be the very best you can be. But... Do you? I mean, is everything about that we have to accomplish in life have to be done the very best we can do? It just seems like a, we're setting ourselves up, aren't we? I don't know. I don't want to create an out for everybody but or a cop out for everybody, but um, sometimes it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's not about what you're doing. I mean, I would think if something matters deeply, yeah, do your best on it. But if it's how you park your car, you may not need to bring it in, bring it out, bring it in, bring it out, bring it in, bring it out until it's the perfect parking place in your garage. Just park your flipping car. Ah, the stress of being human, isn't it crazy? Well, we'll continue the journey, folks. That's why we're doing the show, to give you the information, the tools you need to live long, longer, to love stronger, and to let things go when you need to let them go. We'll continue the journey. More straight ahead. This is The Matt and Show.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one chat byu This
1: is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Life is full of pressure. Have you noticed it? Just enough to stress you out and make life kind of difficult. Um, but the reality is, and, and we, we hear more and more, that people are feeling more stress more anxiety, more people are being diagnosed with anxiety. And yet, how can that be, right? I mean, is life just that much more stressful or are we just losing our grip? Are we losing our ability to find the peace amidst all of the pressure? So I I actually, um, I've had a really weird experience with this. So I have a lot of clients. I teach um, marriage skills, conflict resolution skills, teach them how to communicate, And and strengthen their relationship. But I found a lot of couples, what they're struggling with is one member of the relationship or or the partnership, one of them may have more anxiety than the other. And that anxiety plays out in really strange ways in the marriage. They they you may have a partner that worries about a lot of stuff. You may have a partner that might be more introverted and doesn't want to go to every party that uh, you want to go to or they stress about it and they they would rather stay home and read a book and you know watch Netflix and hang out and you might be thinking what is your deal? It's this isn't fun. This isn't uh, the way to live. We can't always worry about everything. So how do we manage the anxiety if we're going through it? Um, as as and, and I created a workshop for it and um, put it on my website, uh, matttownsend.com. But the workshop is really about how we figure out how to get through it. So let's talk a little bit about what anxiety is and what you can do about it. Anxiety, by the way, is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, Physical changes like increased blood pressure. Everyone, by the way, should experience anxiety, right? If I drop a cobra in your cubicle, you should experience some stress, right? Very natural thing. You should have the worries. The difference with anxiety disorders or people that have an anxiety disorder is their anxiety is, is kind of – it's constant. It's permanent, About 18 percent of the U.S. population, 25 percent of adolescents ages 13 to 18, 18 percent of adults suffer uh, and experience anxiety above and beyond just a natural state of stress. And so it's a big deal. Now, one thing to remember, though, is not all stress is bad. And that's one of the downsides to trying to deal with anxiety is a lot of us would just rather go medicate our stress and take drugs, take anything we can to, to not have to engage um, or just avoid life. But the problem with it is a lot of your greatest growth in life is going to take place when there's a little stress on board. So you got to know that there's this one type of stress called eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, which is a very helpful type of stress. 77% of Americans regularly experience physical symptoms caused by stress seventy three percent of Americans regularly experience psychological symptoms caused by stress, and seventy six percent of Americans cited that money and work as the leading causes of their stress now interestingly, you um, stress is a healthy type of stress, so the way this works is you stress would be the fact that you love your job. And you you know you you have to pick up your game, you have to work really hard, you focus on going and doing that really big presentation, and sure you're a little stressed out on the way there, you're stressed out, but then you hit a home run, and life is great. That stress is called you stress that is the healthy stress, and if you have enough of it in your life, you feel energized, you feel focused, right? You feel excited about life. You really feel like your work is is produces results. That's the good stress. If you have too much of that going on in life, that's called distress. You start to get anxious, fatigue, exhaustion, breakdown. So, at, at some point in our lives, we have to know when we're moving from the good stress to the unhealthy stress. So, think about it like think about it like physical exercise. Nobody necessarily loves to feel the stress of running on a treadmill. But once you've but once you've kind of gotten in shape and you can run on a treadmill and maybe put in 30 or 40 minutes on a treadmill, that is a good amount of stress that helps keep you healthier. If you don't ever want to have that experience of feeling the stress of a treadmill, then you could fall into kind of an unhealthy state where you're not challenged, you can't do things, you can't even live at an optimal level, or you could actually spend too much time on the treadmill and it becomes distressful and makes you less healthy. So life is about balance, right? So how do we do that? How do we get into life to a point that we, we can balance this anxiety and this stress? So think about your own existence. Do you, do you look forward to your work? Do you look forward to your work day? Do you dread it? Do you have this feeling of uh, just doom and gloom? There's no one way to... Um, to kind of assume that uh you're just a, you have an anxiety disorder unless you start looking at how your day st- plays out do you do you have dread do you have fear do you always wonder what's going to happen tomorrow do you wonder what do you worry about things that you said yesterday and uh, maybe obsess about it and think about it many times today oh i shouldn't have said that why did i say that if you can't let go of yesterday And you're always worried about tomorrow, you're probably going to feel more and more stress. And stress is normal, right? Think about it. If you naturally spend a lot of time in tomorrow, you should feel stressed. Because the problem with tomorrow is you can't live tomorrow. So you can call it whatever you want to call it. You can call it anxiety if you want. You can call it stress. I don't call it anxiety usually. I call it worry. I don't call it fear. I don't call it concern. These are all words you may have—apprehension, unease, agitation, angst, tension. You might have the dem-dare the, jitters, but the reality is you probably have worry. And how do you handle worry? Uh, let me give you a, just a few of my favorite little tricks about worry, okay? And I promise they work. Number one way on earth to manage your worry, and we've talked about it on the show quite a bit, is the fact that um, you got to breathe. When people are stressed— your breathing changes think about it if all of a sudden you heard somebody you're walking down an alley in downtown new york and somebody you know starts a chainsaw behind you your body is going to kick into some natural fight or flight mode when that fight or flight mode is on your bre- your body is going to start breathing differently probably more shallow breathing Right, Because you got to get enough oxygen going, but you got to get that heart pumping. You're going to breathe shallow. You don't have time to take enormous, big, deep breaths. Your body will tighten up. And as you tighten up and get ready to start running, game on. And that's what happens to a lot of people. If I, if I told you today that you're going to have to be on national television in front of 3 million people and talk about something... That might stress you out. And what you'll notice happens immediately, your breathing changes. You don't tend to breathe as deeply. You don't tend to uh, get as much oxygen in your system. And when that's going on, you feel stress. The natural byproduct of not breathing enough is stress. If I sat on your chest, it would stress you out, I'm pretty sure. It would stress you out. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had, remember back in the day, your friend would sit on top of you and hold your arms down and all of a sudden you start freaking out and you can't breathe, I can't breathe. You start hyperventilating. That's what happens when worry kicks in. So the number one tool is to learn active breathing techniques. And there, it's hard to teach, it's really not because it's, it's easier to see, I think, healthy breathing. But all you have to do is go to YouTube and look up active breathing. And there are incredible tools online to start learning how to breathe Deeply. I learned as a, as a journalist um, and, and an anchor, a television reporter anchor, right before I would go on air, I would always take a deep cleansing breath. I'd try to fill my lungs up with air. I'd try to hold it, and then I would breathe it out slowly. And when I did that, amazingly, I got rid of the jitters. The jitters literally just disappeared. And they disappear because once your body's oxygenated, you don't need to feel the worry. Many believe 80% of anxiety issues can be managed just simply by breathing. More effective, healthy breathing. Another tool that is so powerful for you is your brain and where you put your thoughts. So once you start to notice your worry, a lot of us start arguing about the worry. I had a great story with my son once where um, he had a little social anxiety and he didn't want to go to his this guitar performance class we had signed him up for. He asked to go to this class, just so you know. It wasn't parents forcing him. He wanted to go to it until it was time to go. Then he started giving us a bunch of lip and story like, I don't want to go. These people, I don't even know these people. I'm not going to learn anything. I don't want to go for two days. And what if it's stupid? I I want to go with my friends. And We had a million things that he was bringing up. When you start to feel worry, you tend to bring up a lot of nonsense, The things that he doesn't like. Well, what if these people aren't there? A lot of what ifs. A lot of, you know, possible things that might happen. A lot of the teacher's stupid. They don't understand me. I don't want to go to school. This is stupid. Scouts are stupid. Whatever you try to get your kids to do that they don't want to do. Um, In the end, don't take the bait. Don't fight over all of these things that aren't the real issue. This had nothing to do with every excuse my son was giving me for why he didn't want to go to the guitar class. It was his worry. His social worry was kicking in. So what I learned to talk with him about is, son, this is your worry kicking in, isn't it? You're just worried. So how are you going to handle your worry? There's only one question you need to worry about when it comes to your worry. It's how you're going to handle your worry. Don't fight about whether you should do it. You've already committed to do it. We've already paid the money. So I basically told him, we've already paid the money. You are going to this camp, this guitar camp for two days. You're going. So the only question we need to figure out is, how are you going to handle your worry? And then we can start worrying about how we handle the worry. And by doing that, I forced my son to deal with his worry instead of making up a bunch of stories that aren't the real issue. Does that make sense? Then I just have to give them a bunch of tools to handle the worry, one of which is breathing. Let's practice our breathing. Another thing we can worry about or practice is our thinking. What are we thinking about? Give me some things that you know that, of how this will work for you. I just coached a person on that had to give a really big speech, and they were, very, they were terrified about having to give the speech. And they're worried that they're going to break into hives. They're worried that their face is going to go red. And I'm like, OK, so great. So let's imagine you get up there and you uh, – have you ever broken into hives before doing a speech? She's like, no. But I've seen somebody break into hives and it was horrible. So you've never seen or noticed you broke into hives? No. So if that's the case, what are the odds you'll break into hives? Well, I don't know, but I don't want to risk it. Let's say you did break into hives. Could you wear clothes that would make it so you didn't – no one could see your neck breaking into hives. Well, yeah, I've got this really nice blouse that could cover – great. Let's wear that. What else would happen if you started getting worried and your face turned red? What else could you do? And we started talking about solutions for how they could handle it. And amazingly, once you start to address the issues that you can handle, a lot of times your worries kick down, right? One of the rules about talking and dealing with your worry is focus where you have influence and power to influence. Don't just focus on what you're concerned about. If you focus on your concerns, your concerns tend to grow. If you focus on where you have influence, your ability to influence it grows. I remember giving a speech once after uh, in a in a in a speaking class in in college, and um, saw somebody really having a physical breakdown in the middle of their speech. And then I went and gave my speech. And immediately after my speech, I ran to the restroom and I looked at myself in the mirror because I wanted to see if I was experiencing or showing, demonstrating any of the physiological effects of a breakdown. And I got this confirmation that I wasn't. I was a little sweaty, but I wasn't red faced. I wasn't breaking into hives. I wasn't. uh, My eyes weren't bulging. I wasn't hyperventilating and once i got that fixed in my brain i could then know that for me i don't respond that way and that gave me more and more power one of the another powerful way to manage your anxiety is to recognize it call it that say it out loud wow i'm feeling worried because you're you're going to have to see it sometime right once you start to see that you're feeling the worry and and owning the label of it then you actually can, you can do something more about it. Another powerful tool to managing anxiety is simply um, staying present. Because our inclination is to, and you'll notice, a lot of your worry is going to come from your past or your future, worrying about what might happen, worrying about what did happen. The more I can stay in the now and work on what I can work on, It creates some powerful, powerful stuff. Another thing I teach in my uh, worry program and my anxiety program is that you need to build what I call your calmness code. There are certain things that build more calmness, right? And I need to know what my code is. And so over my lifetime, I've been figuring out. I know before I do a big event or a big speech, sleep helps me. I know that I need to be prepared. I need to know my stuff. I need to trust and believe in my abilities. I need to think back to all of my successful experiences. And as I build my own code, I know I need to probably not have caffeine on board. Uh, or sometimes that will create more anxiety for me. I know I need to have some good, healthy food in me. I also know before I speak, I can't have just eaten so I've learned all of these little tricks uh, before I speak. And I now what's interesting is because I speak so much, like two or three times a week, and get paid to speak, it's, um, it changes. It changes your confidence level. It changes who you are. I remember being terrified. Uh, I was the youngest presenter for a, a major training company called Franklin Covey Company. And um, I was this young punk that would go out and try to figure out, you know, I'm going to go speak for this company. And I'm, I'm, you know, half the age of a lot of people in the room. And I remember having to just get my position clear. And I, I remember thinking, you know what? I just need to remember that this, none of this is about me. Nobody came here. And I, I used to write this on the, the, the little workbooks I would teach from, uh, my, my facilitator manual. I would write the phrase, Matt, nobody came here to see you. Just deliver the message. Just teach the principles. And I found a lot of peace in that. Nobody was there. Nobody traveled to go to a public workshop to see Matt Townsend when I was supposed to be teaching the seven habits of highly effective people. Just deliver the principles. And I found that when I lost myself by consciously putting myself in a different reframe, it worked. Amazingly, it works and that 's the cool thing about uh, worry it It can be your guide. it can tell you that you need to pay attention and it doesn't need to it doesn't need to own you and The powerful thing about it is once you start to take your life back and not let the worry or the anxiety dominate, you have now conquered something that is huge and now you can start to offer your greatest offerings in the world because you 've conquered you 've conquered your weakness. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. You can find out more. Just just look up the show, The Matt Townsend Show or matttownsend.com. Tons of material out there, all free, just here to help. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Grandparents can have a big impact on the lives of their grandchildren. Likewise, grandparents can be an important source of information for their children who are trying to raise their their, their kids. So what is the role of a grandparent? Uh, joining us to talk about it is Leslie Zinberg, one of the writers of the GrandparentsLink.com blog, and she's here today to share some t- uh, tips on how to be a better grandparent. Leslie, thank you so much for being with us today.
5: Thank you for inviting me.
1: This Thank is uh I'm a new not new two two and a half years a grandparent about to be a grandparent again and um with twins coming down the pike but I'm wondering I mean it's nobody teaches you how to be a grandparent nobody kind of walks you through all of uh the important lessons that and roles that you could play. Talk to us about um uh what what we need to know what is what and how would you kind of define and set up the role of a grandparent
5: okay, first of all, congratulations thank you um, I think the role of a grandparent is to be a real friend, somebody that your grandchild trusts and somebody that you that your grandchild loves being with i mean you're just I, I think that one of the best things about being a grandparent is that you get to spend quality time with your grandchild. It's, you know, you get to have them for a while, and then and then if, if they don't live with you, then you get to give them back.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
5: um, so I think it's really important how you spend your time with the grandchild. And it doesn't have to be that you're buying presents, you know. We always say that, at, you know, presents, P-R-E-S, E-N-C-E, is much more important than buying presents. Yeah. It's being with them, and it can be just making them aware of just the whole world because they make you aware of the world. All of a sudden, as a grandparent, you forget maybe that those stars in the sky are so incredibly beautiful, and then your grandchild will point out something to you and you think, wow. Wow. So many of the things that I've taken for granted for the last whatever in my life that I looked at with my children, I'm now being – it's being pointed out again with my grandchildren.
1: Yeah. Is it? Is it – I mean, I, that's, I think, the key, isn't it? That we – it's almost like we might need to make sure we we slow down and, mm-hmm. and and be there for them at this time.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it is being mindful. I mean, this is the word you – hear a lot now, um, but we talk about being mindful, paying attention to the moment, not being in your car with your grandchildren and having talking on the phone. Or, I mean, if you're having the radio on, maybe you're listening to, to your favorite station, which has some of your favorite songs. Yeah. You know, maybe it's teaching them, you know, my kids, my grandkids know all about James Taylor and yeah. Alison Krauss and all of my favorites, Simon and Garfunkel. And they can sing those songs because we sing them together in That's the car. That's And it's exposing them to your, own, to your life and letting them hear about your life, too, because you also want to show them tradition and yeah. it's carrying on the traditions, whether it's um, a silly tradition that you all we we sing a birthday song um and we have a couple, a couple of couple things at the end and of course now they've they've added to that or they've you know they've learned about our you know learned about let's say religion or they learn about um just the traditions of a holiday that you have so just that the, and they become important because it's something that they have year after year after year which gives them stability, which gives them a, a, a sense of foundation, which gives them a sense of belonging. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all so important. And you can just, you know, you can just being there and reading a book, reading together is so incredible.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, I guess that's that's the thing is... Um, has the role of grandparent changed a little bit? I mean, we know the technology has, we know um you know, just kind of our our lifestyles are changing and becoming a little bit faster paced. Does that does that change what we should be doing or could be doing as grandparents?
5: Well, I think you have to look at it two ways. I think that you can't ignore technol- technology. So there's, you know, you can figure out which are the best apps and i have apps on my on on my phone and my partner has apps on her phone and and our grandchildren play on the apps with us right it, it, the the key is i remember raising my own kids and not using the television as a babysitter and i think that's the same thing you have to do today you can't use the, the television as a babysitter you can't use the computer or the ipad or the iphone you can use it, but I mean you they I don't think that they are a substitute uh, babysitter right so if you're if you're working on a if you're doing a, an app together and you're playing a game together, then that's great or if there's you know um my grandkids are have computers at school and they do some of their homework on computers, and you know I think that that's fabulous mm-hmm. But we can't, and so we can't ignore that. And at the same time, it cannot be a substitute mom or dad or grandparent. Right. I mean, the most fun is hanging out with your grandkids and cooking together or going to the park together or taking a walk together. or um, It's just, and it makes it so easy. I mean, my, you know, I have a granddaughter who is, nine going to be 10 next week and she has decided she wants to be a chef um and so she experiments in my kitchen which is great except that i have glitter all over my (laughs) (laughs) all over my um dining table and we we make all kinds of things and the kitchen is horrendous mess when she's done but we've we have such fun
1: yeah yeah, that's well, and you're, and it, I mean, you're if all if your worst thing you've got to do is clean up the glitter, with her. I mean, that's great. And right. the thing, like you brought up earlier, that they're a real friend and that they really look at grandma as a real friend, someone they can trust, someone they love to spend time with. That doesn't happen if you make them come, you know, and and only do what you like to do.
5: Yes, what you want, what you're doing is you're building memories. Yeah. Um, and, And you, as a grandparent, get to see the world through their eyes. So you're expanding, as a grandparent, you're expanding your mind, and you're getting out and being active. I mean, going to a museum. Right. It expands the child's mind, and it expands the grandparent's mind. And if you use grandparenting, I think, the right way, then you, as an individual, Stay younger because you're learning as they're learning.
1: Yeah. It really, I mean, it really does keep you younger and up to date. I mean, my granddaughter brought me a movie she wanted to watch that was, I guess it's a new Disney uh, character that she loves and I've never heard of it and I'm like, oh my heavens, I've never even heard of this. But um, but now I feel like I'm a little bit more informed, a little bit more in tune and my uh, everybody's watching this. It's – I don't know. Anyway, I think it's – it is a way to, to be connected and, and almost – what I didn't – I guess I didn't anticipate is how much I would love my grandchild – um, I love them every bit as much as as every one of my children, but um it's just a different responsibility, and it's almost one that is just nothing but giving. you can just give, give, yes. give, give, and then, like you said, lovingly hand them back,
5: yes, and yes, and then and you will and you and as they get as they get older, they give, give, give to you, yeah, just by a conversation, their conversations are as they get older, are so amazing, or what they, I have a six-year-old grandson, and um, we were standing in the kitchen making something, and he looked at me, and my husband was out of town, and he looked at me, and he said, I think I need to spend the night here tonight, and I said, why? He said, well, Grandpa's out of town. He doesn't call him Grandpa. He calls him Jeezy. Jeezy's out of town, and I don't think you should be here alone.
4: Oh, wow. Cute.
5: And I thought, okay, this is a six year old little boy who is deeply thinking and thinking about what's going on, not just about himself, but he has now gone beyond
1: himself. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Boy, that's, that's, that's and, and two, boy, just, just that, the reassurance it gives you, but also the, the, that gentle reassurance that, man, these kids are great. These kids are doing fine because it's sometimes it's easy to be generational. And, yeah, those younger kids, they're just so messed up. But you have little moments like that and you realize really how, how good we all have it.
5: Right. Right. I mean, it's really to be in the moment and realize what you're doing right now is to be. It's a little thing that that we have, which is be where you are. So, you know, you're in the car, you're driving them from place to place because that, as a grandparent, is a big role. Yeah. You can sing together, you can talk together, you can play games together, you can talk about the school day, you can... It doesn't matter what you're doing, it's just that you're being together and you're unplugged. Mm. Um, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with technology, but I think you have to not use technology... As a substitute babysitter. Yeah. But work with it. And and I also think that that's the great thing about grandparenting is that, as I said before, you learn as they learn. I have learned so much more about apps and computers and even coding. Yeah. Because I've had to. Just as you had to keep up with your, your kids. Yeah. You need to keep up with your, your grandkids. But there is your, there's a certain joy that you that as a grandparent you have that you can't even explain to somebody until they become a grandparent.
1: Hmm. So true. We're speaking with Leslie Zinberg, who is the uh, is an author, and also uh, has been married for 48 years with two children, two grandchildren, and is currently co-writing a book on mindful grandparenting. Also, she has co-written two other books, The Pink and Blue Baby Pages and The Pink and Blue Toddler and Preschooler Pages. She's walking us through some of her insights about being a, a better grandparent. What um, I always worry too about my – I, I want to love and be with my grandkids as much as I can. I also want my my children to be able to to make sure that they're, I'm not stealing their role, I'm not overstepping my boundaries. How do we walk that fine line?
5: Yeah, well, that's, that's, a, that's a funny line. I mean, it's a little bit like being a mother-in-law. Yeah. You know, they tell you as a mother-in-law to, you know, to open your pocketbook and close your mouth.
4: <laughs> right.
5: <laughs> um, and I think as um, a grandparent, you have to be careful you know, it's one thing when they're in your under, under your guys and in your in your home, and you have them. They're going to have to abide by your rules. Yeah. I mean, sometimes your rules are different than the parents' rules, um, but and you also have to appreciate what the parents want or what they don't want. So, I, I think, for example, I will give you our grandkids that have to eat gluten free. And that is a rule that their parents have, and it's for their benefit. Mm -hmm. And I've had to learn what is gluten-free and what's not. Hmm. And I have to honor that because that's important to their parents. You know, I think you have to honor what their parents want or what they don't want. Sometimes I don't always agree with how their parents want them to do something. Yeah, And you know what? It's not up to me. I'm not the parent.
1: Leslie Zinberg is her name. Go check out the website, grandparentslink.com. It's a great blog uh, that will walk you through some of those articles she was talking about and help us all to be more present with those that we love, those that are around us. There really is no greater calling, I think, than um, being a grandparent. And that's somebody that's been a parent and a spouse. And, I mean, it really is such a unique relationship where they already have – the kids have their parents. They just now have a grandparent, a parent that uh, can relate to them and connect to them in such a deep way, such a profound way. We will continue the journey more straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We, uh, With only one life to live, right? Sometimes we get caught up with the idea that every moment of our life has to be the best moment possible. Licensed clinical social worker Diane Barth uh, suggests that uh, it doesn't have to be that way, that we, we maybe need to let go of the idea of being the best and just be okay with being good enough. Uh, we wanted to revisit one of her interviews, and in that interview, I started the interview by asking her, or by saying, "We want the best, but the best job is the one best thing for you, right?" And that's that's not always uh, necessary.
3: Oh, absolutely, it's a really important point, and and put it on the other end of the spectrum. Also, I see it with um, co- you know recent college grads, yeah, who are looking for their first job, and they feel that it has to be the best job and it has to be the right job and one of the problems with that is that your first job out of college is almost never the best job and it hopefully is not the job you're going to stay in for the rest of your life but it's a chance to really learn some skills that you don't learn in college and that you probably haven't developed or um, new skills that you need to develop And I actually think that's one of the biggest problems with the fantasy of the best is that it interferes with our ability to learn. We Mm. think we're supposed to know it all. We're supposed to do it all. We're supposed to have it all already. So we can't learn.
1: Well, and how many kids want to have the cars and the homes that their parents have and yet uh – you know, we didn't get there overnight.
3: Right, exactly.
1: And what's so funny about it, too, is many of the parents that now have the cars and the homes, they're not even happy. They don't even right. like what they've got.
4: Yes, yes.
1: And, you know, and they'd give anything. But it's, I guess it's just that comparative mentality, and I, it's, I it's just something, I guess, that's so natural to a human being.
3: Well, and I think you put your finger on something super important, which is that the more we are able to appreciate, as you said before, the good, you know, yeah. the more we will stop, stro- you know, struggling for something that we either can't have or don't have. Um, I think that this idea that we're supposed to have the best, the best car, the best, the best new car the best house, the, you know, the best mm-hmm. new dishwasher, whatever it is that we think we're supposed to have or that we feel like is the best thing to have, um, you know, it, as you say, it just stops us from enjoying what we do have.
1: Is there, it seems like one place we, we really might want to do our best is just in our own personal um, delivery of, of um, our skills or our talents. Shouldn't we try to do our best job?
3: You know, I—that's I, I, one of the things I write about. I think that that's a really complex question because, of course, we want to strive to do the best we can do. But um, I, it, my first um, uh, supervisor when I graduated from social work school, was a really interesting guy who used to say that you know, yes, you want to do. Absolutely, as well as you can do. But what you need to know is that, you know, one day you've got more energy or mm. more, or somehow things are just clicking. Yeah. And that day, your best is going to be better than another day when you've got a little less energy or you're hungry or you're tired or you had a fight with your boyfriend or your
4: girlfriend.
3: Uh-huh. And what he said over and over again, because as you may have figured out, I was and struggled with my whole life being a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so over and over again, he would say to me, you know, you're not going to ever be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. I mean, he actually is the one who taught me that you learn from mistakes. You really learn yeah. from mistakes. But that your, your striving to be your best needs to be with a recognition that today's best is not the same as another day's best.
1: That's true. I guess that's it. Huh? It's it's based on the conditions, the needs, the abilities, the timing. Your your best is going to change.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: And, and I, yeah, you you really don't. But we do as humans. You probably ought to find a way to not expect to do more than you can really do. But we're horrible critics, aren't we, of ourselves?
3: We are. We are. We're the worst critics. Absolutely. Mm.
1: We need to stop that. What comes (laughs) after best? I mean, what's so funny about it is so you finally – and you see this a lot like on Pinterest or on certain sites where somebody has now made the perfect meal. Right. And it's beautifully decorated. and And it's all laid out. So once and you've delivered the perfect. Yeah, yeah, and you got your picture. But then at my house it would be the boys would sit down and they'd all be like, "Ew! <laughs> right. Ew! What is that?" Right. And so after we've attained best, then what? Yep. yep. It's it just seems like we're setting ourselves up to really be kicked in the chin again. Yep. <laughs> Cuz it's it tomorrow's another day.
3: Yep, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, which
1: is why like we're chasing a dream, aren't we? Yes.
3: But it's a, it's, yes, and it's a problematic dream. I, I actually, I, I, um, I come from a family who, and my, and my husband and my son are big sports fans. Yeah. And I actually think that there's a great lesson. I mean, I know there are all sorts of problems with all kinds of athletics, but there is a great lesson to be learned from professional and, and even college athletes in that they play as well as they can play. And they know that tomorrow is going to be another day. Uh Tomorrow they're going to play another game. It will be different. They may have an injury. They may be better. Um, But they don't stop because today was a perfect game.
1: Right. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, we just do it again tomorrow and we kind of reset. I think that's, I think that is just a great paradigm about it. And, and tomorrow we, you know, tomorrow we could just get schooled and, and yet, you know, today's today. As exactly. we wrap up, um, Diane, what, what would you say is the one thing we just need to keep in mind to make sure that we're, that good is good? And it's good enough.
3: I, I think maybe that's, the, that's it. I, I do think that the, the idea, you said it earlier, and I think this is really probably the most important thing, that a lot of times when we're striving for what we think of as the best, we're looking for something from other people. We're looking for some kind of approval, mm. some kind of validation. And that's fine. I think as human beings we all need that. But that's not about the best. It's about what we're looking for, what we need, and we will go ahead and need that again another yeah. time.
1: Yeah. Oh, so that's if we a... can
3: enjoy what we've got, if we can get some validation for what we've got, great.
1: That, again, was Diane Barth uh, talking about the five ways that good enough is better than best. She is a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. And, again, we're doing what we can to just keep uh, bringing you the information you need to make it through this crazy thing called life. You're good enough. You're doing a great job, and good enough is many times all we need to be. Uh, This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at DrMattShow. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
0: BYU Radio.
1: And welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so, as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden. You've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay at home person and the other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement and so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your, your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in, uh, in, the, uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16% increase simply because now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, you'd think like, well, no duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's going to look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market? Before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and and the major, you know, breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home. What does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? you got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motor home and become members of the Good Sam Club? And travel all over the country, is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time, you know? Information. Very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? By the way, that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting. Because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out how much each other is going to need. How much space will your partner need every day? you got to figure out what your time is versus their time, versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south. Because now we, now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning. Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that you know your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to, how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home. What are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire, and Andrew Steptoe brought it up, it's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great. Let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say at your funeral? What do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, this is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us? our grandchildren, our great grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start you know working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are are resources we can be using. But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing how do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time – if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues. And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the coach's corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the coach's corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on SiriusXM 143 BYU Radio.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one 855 chat This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Let me give you some Principles. Of life, if you want to be happy, okay, four principles that i uh, have found they 're not new they 're and it 's not grit, uh, but it might lead to grit. Uh, four lessons of happy people if you want to be happy and you because there 's a lot we can teach our kids right, and we 're killing ourselves, trying to give them every opportunity in the world but if i if I could just only teach my children four things, these are the four things that boy, I think in the end are worth all the money in the world. First and foremost, if I could teach my kids to just be self-aware, meaning they could understand how they influence others, if they could see their strengths, if they understood their weaknesses, if they really were into understanding who they are, if they understood their feelings, had their, their own insights into who they are, their contributions in life, their their greatest uh, strengths, their greatest weaknesses. If I could teach self-awareness, boy, then I would be ahead of the game. If I had a child that understood what he did well, what he doesn't do so well, and hopefully help that child also learn to to take that self-awareness and develop it into you know, strength and go be learned and tutored and educated on those things, how cool would that be? Are your children self-aware? Do they understand the impact they have on their friends? Do they understand what their strengths are really? Or do they just kind of shy away from them and don't want to go there? Do they know if, if they're good socially? Do they know if they're good academically? Do they know what, what they're good at academically? Do they know what, they come, what comes natural to them? Are they numbers people? Do they get the numbers? Do they, are they, do they love language? Self-awareness is a powerful, powerful trait. And so if we could teach self-awareness, that helps us understand us. One way to do this is to work with your kids and ask them questions about themselves, like what foods do you really like? Which foods do you notice really that, uh, that don't, don't suit you, that, that aren't good for you, that you eat, and when you eat them, have you noticed what you feel after you eat them? What, uh, what things impact your moods? These are great topics of conversation, things that we could be discussing with our kids. Try to identify from what they're saying about themselves, what do they feel like they do the best? What do they feel when they're out playing on a team? What insecurities do they have? Where do they feel most secure? Where do they feel most at home? How do they impact others? Just conversations. And by the way, allowing a child to feel what they're feeling. If they're sad, don't try to get them to stop feeling sad. Have them talk about their sadness. Figure out where it came from. How did they get to that feeling? Anyway, self-aware is one of the great lessons I think we should all be teaching. Another is that we want to teach our kids to learn to care. How many times have you asked your kid, what do you want for dinner? Like, I don't care. Well, I know you don't, but I need you to kind of (laughs) care. What do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. I don't care. At some point, caring is, is more than just being nice, right? At some point, learning to care is 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 something bigger than that. Caring is also, it's the great motivator, right? When somebody actually cares about something else or someone else, it actually drives emotion. To care means we know more uh, about ourselves, but we also kind of know what drives us. It's a sense of responsibility. You know, having a dog. As a kid growing up, I cared for my dog and even though I didn't care for cleaning up after and because I cared for the dog, I wanted the dog to have the best life, I, I created more motivation. I was more in uh, a connection with this dog because of that. So we've got to teach our kids to care about stuff, to care about their own gears, their own equipment, to care about their own thinking. Some things they, they can care about are their thoughts. We care about thoughts. When we care about our thoughts, we have thoughts that we believe in. We espouse thoughts. We fight for our thinking. We can care about things, you know, our toys, our bikes, our stuff. And we try to preserve the things we care about. We can also care about people. And when I care about people, we end up taking care of people. We listen to people. We serve people. So if we could teach our kids to be self-aware and to care, holy cow. Then we're on to something. We could also teach them to dare, right, to grow, to try to be stronger, to reach out, to risk. And then we could teach them to share, to serve others, to connect, to give of what they have to others. Self-aware, care, share, dare basic skills, folks. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour and they have too many thoughts coming in. And with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and, you know, text messaging, emails, they've got a lot of thoughts and so I wanted to help you out today and help you figure out how to, to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Because – and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious and some are conscious. Some of you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some thoughts you don't even think about. 90 percent of thought you don't even think about.
6: How much and how much of this has to do with social media, TV watching,
1: reading, yeah. reading. Interesting. Right. And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media and your your brain at one level is still processing it. And then you might actually bring it into the, the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head. And I found that there's uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts that I bring up. I mean, I'm sure if I talked to a neuropsychiatrist we'd find seven. But I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I I have some some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys by the way to thinking is thoughts are they stay in your head because of energy. Right? It takes energy to keep a thought to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head and to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us, right? Uh, The thought about scheduling, your appointment. They're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed. Uh, Appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't – they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important like don't forget to pick up your kids. Don't forget to unplug the iron. All of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm
6: leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything.
1: No, but see, see, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. <laughs> I'm I don't get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy... To tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar, that energy would help eliminate the thought. So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my report's due tomorrow? And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so? Maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon. And that occupies energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having
6: 70,000 thoughts a day... And that – I mean that – you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you all at one time. Yeah. How do you prioritize and say let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it will go away? Well, I might do it this –
1: when you had the thought, right? Like if all of a sudden I'm I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say let me go check on that. I would say right, let me check and I'd check right now because – I'm doing it now, so I don't – otherwise, I just delay it and I create 15 more thoughts of it. Do it now. If I have a prompting that I really ought to call so-and-so, I would either schedule a call to so-and-so or I might not call him. I might text him, and I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. How are you doing? I'd just check in. Now, that will create issues. I get that. But – you're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads, or, you know, the thought, I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, Just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done. Band-Aid off. Rip it out. But if it's a a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line, and then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're going to – that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out. But I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to. But I, if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes, and they inspire me. And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes – They're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. McKenna Baus joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit.
7: Hey. How are you? Doing well. Good to
1: have you. Yeah, it's nice to be Our top-notch producer and social media guru.
7: Oh, well. I think you do me more credit than I deserve.
1: No, excellent to have you. uh, Good to have you here. Talk about – you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying.
7: Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids sitting in (laughs) class studying Latin. I love –
1: that was my favorite subject.
7: You are one of the rare few.
1: I'm fluent in a dead language.
7: Well, there you go. And the thing is now more and more people um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right. Right now, um, there's predictions by scientists that ninety percent of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone.
1: Ninety percent?
7: Ninety percent. What? Yeah. We're That's looking crazy. at mass extinction when it comes to language, right? Why, now. just
1: because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages?
7: Yeah. So right now there's approximately seven thousand languages wow. that we're aware of. On Earth, and about the top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken. And even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used, mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages—the big names, yeah. you know, that we all are familiar with,
1: like English,
7: English maybe Spanish, Spanish, Mandarin Chinese. Yeah.
6: Although yeah. kids aren't even speaking English anymore. They're just sending emojis over their phones.
1: Yeah. Well, emojis is another language. Oh, definitely. So that is sad because you lose your language, mm-hmm. you lose your culture.
7: Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing, um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other to understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they – are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody yeah. in the language that they grew up
1: with. And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some yeah, it's, university.
7: It's still the thing is, though, is that's just such an undertaking Sad. that a lot of these people, they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and is
1: I guess is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top 10 languages?
7: Um, that's you know part of it. One of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change. really? Yeah, um, a lot of these you know languages that are dying out are in these uh, ecologically threatened areas, and as seawater levels rise, they ha- these people have to move inland. they integrate more with mm. other communities, and all of a sudden their language starts dying out. Mm. and so you have the environment changing, changing our languages and the
1: culture. Yeah. And taking away the sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I, I speak Spanish and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's we have a word like love, mm-hmm. but you can love a burrito and you can love your wife
7: it's not the and same we don't
1: thing. differentiate. <laughs> you know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing.
7: Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can.
1: But now we but we've got other like, we've got other words now that are so wonderful, like square up. I don't even know if I know what that, that just means. means get ready to fight me. Oh, OK. My son says it to me every morning. Square up, Dad. I'm Like you want me to punch you? But he just it's just. I don't know what it is. It's just being... Sounded Irish. Square up, man. do want me to punch you? You want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm -hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming, apparently.
7: Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by... You know, decades and centuries before this yeah. of oppression of um, indigenous people trying to force assimilation mm-hmm. of different cultures. Uh, that's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. Uh, for years, right. they had forced education things. That they were These kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages and now – Nobody can. Yeah,
1: and we are in our intolerance to – everybody has to speak English. But now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in, and it might – we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages.
7: Yeah, we definitely – we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man,
1: McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean really, folks, did you even think of that? It's powerful. What we lose when we – I mean 7,000 languages, we could lose 90 percent of them. Crazy. We'll take a break, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be back. You know, in a world of changing values and mixed opinions, we often forget some of the most basic and fundamental parts of our culture, the manners, right? We all need manners. Sometimes it's hard to know what the polite and proper thing to do is anymore. But national etiquette expert Cynthia Grosso says your manners and etiquette are not just actions. They are an attitude that is closely related to your self-confidence, your position in business and personal life as well as your ability to build successful relationships, teams, and organizations. She joins us today from South Carolina to bring us back to a time when things were a little simpler and to remind us what our grandmothers once taught us. Cynthia, thanks for being with us.
8: Hi, good morning.
1: Great to have you on the show. And um, when I when I think of manners, I mean, you do. You think of grandma telling you to get your elbows off the table and stand up straight. Are, are we losing... Are we losing manners? Are they, are, they, are they too subjective now that we don't have a standard?
8: Um, you know, it's interesting because I think that a lot of people think that it is about the rules. And um, I have a little saying that says, rules without reason result mm. in rebellion. And so what we found oftentimes nowadays is that we understand what we're supposed to do, but we often don't explain the why as to why we're doing it. And, um, you know, if it's just something you have to do without understanding why you're doing it, it tends to be uh, rebelled against or just not done or not understood.
1: Oh, it's so true. And so
8: they – yeah, they really haven't – the thoughts really haven't changed. It's never really been about the rules. It's always really been about confidence, understanding that the definition of confidence is faith or belief, that you are acting in a right, comma, proper and effective manner. And if we really peel the onion back on that, what we find is that the right, comma, comma proper and effective manner is really based, is rooted really and truly in manners, etiquette, and protocol, knowing what to do, and that's manners, knowing how to do it, that's etiquette, and knowing when to do it, that's protocol. So it's really been about the confidence. Um, Their manners and confidence are directly related. Because if we look at you know well, who determines what the right, proper and effective manner is and right. again, it's rooted there, so we start to understand that it's a lot bigger than just what goes around your kitchen table or gets your elbows off the table, mm-hmm. or, you know, I teach people when you or you know talk to people and let them know that when you teach your child to write a thank you note, you're not teaching the action of writing the note, you're teaching the attitude of gratitude, you're teaching not what to to do but how to be and that's much bigger
4: Mm, or when you teach
8: them to hold a yeah when you hold them a spoon correctly a soup spoon it's not the action of holding the spoon it's the attitude of self-respect it's not about what you're doing it's it's who you are and how to be so it's a lot bigger than people think and and it's true I think sometimes um, parents don't always equate manners and confidence but they're directly related, so it's it's so important and
1: if you can i guess i guess the neat thing is if you can if you understand the deeper meaning behind a lot of this then you you can you can customize and you can adapt to every situation and the needs of others and what they want and need from you give us um you wrote uh or the, there's an article about etiquette rules what are some of the not even rules, but what are some of the etiquette things uh um etiquette uh I guess it could be any of those, manners, protocols. What are some of the things we need to pay attention to today that um, that are important?
8: Right. Um, and pretty much we talk about, um, you know, social etiquette for more for like children. And then, of course, there's business etiquette as well for corporate use. And it's really not about an age. You know, you get to a certain age where it's not necessary anymore. No. Or So when we talk about it, it's all-encompassing. And it really um, it doesn't have any uh, 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 bounds. In other words, it doesn't really matter what your profession is. Uh, we are all in the people business. And so there's so much social science or, um, psycholinguistic and, you know, how, uh, people relate to things that you say and, and how the manner that you say them. And so it's just, it's so much bigger than, like I say, do it because you have to, or do it because it's our company policy or do it because that's the way we do it around here. There's so much of the social science. That's also very interesting with it. So when you, when you ask that question, it's, it's all-encompassing because we start as children and, of course, we, you know, grow up. And these same attitudes, quite frankly, not really the behaviors, but the attitudes stay with us.
4: Mm.
8: So, if we're taught the attitude of gratitude, you know, that extends over to help us. These are life skills, right, that extend, you know, in every area of our life, no matter what our age and no matter where we work. So. Um, you know there's there's lots of them and it's it's the you know you can't have civilization
1: <laughs> right
8: without civility
1: <laughs> that's the isn't that the rub right there <laughs> Be, and, and like even just the attitude of gratitude you bring up cuz i can i can show gratitude by saying thank you i can show gratitude by holding a door for you i can show gratitude by um sending you a thank you letter
8: right and just the smallest of things you know that people you know, I try to teach the, the children in school. Of course, my business is mainly corporate. I live in the corporate world, but I do speak at schools. I have a children's book, so I do author readings, um, or I speak at elementary schools, high schools. Of course, I speak at colleges, but, again, I live mainly in the corporate world. I speak all over the the country. Um, but, I, you know, it's like when I when I talk to children about, you know, understanding that holding the door for someone is really not an action. It's an attitude. And when we watch the person who has just let the door slam and the person's face behind them and we watch them walk through the room, they live their whole life like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a marriage like that, they have a, a business like that. And so we understand that really and truly, it's not the action, it's it's the attitude. And so it's really and that's really what you're shaping if you're talking about family values, that's really what you're shaping when you're talking with children. And, uh, you know, so it's just it's so important. But, you know, oftentimes I, I do do a summer program and like right now I have a teen program, Teen Confidential, running right now. And, you know, people see me and they know me. They say, I'm sending my kid to you this summer, <laughs> you know, like it's a punishment. Yeah,
1: we're going to fix him. <laughs> yeah, totally.
8: And I, I want to say it's not a punishment. It's, it's the basis really and truly for their for their confidence in life well and, and that
1: that um, you bring that point up a lot about confidence because yeah, we a lot of people don't a lot of these a lot of kids even don't know what to do in a in a situation they don't know how to approach a teacher they don't know how to right. give feedback to somebody and so no wonder they're they're afraid if you don't have the skills
8: yeah absolutely if you don't have the skills and you know we we love technology and and um, we love our phones and but sometimes I say you know an effort to connect us sometimes I feel technology has disconnected us and you know it's it's funny because my millennials that I speak with will say oh well we're connecting with people all over the world and you know and I say you know I love that and and it's great and but while you're sitting there connecting with people all over the world there's somebody sitting right next to you yeah. <laughs> that you're not connecting with that you're not speaking. With you know, one of the things that I notice um, is children today. They they I I walk in my neighborhoods in the morning, and I, that's my my morning exercise. I walk, and a lot of times I'll say good morning, and the children don't even really uh, they don't look at you, they don't speak. And I, I understand sometimes you know stranger danger and don't talk to strangers, but you know, I want to tell parents sometimes that. If you will have your child and teach your child to say good morning or to say hello, to uh, address that person, look them in the eye and say good morning as you pass. That's not a conversation. It's mm-hmm. a greeting. Because what I find so much is, it, you know, you walk by someone and it's not so common courtesy. <laughs> we used to call it common courtesy. Today it's not so common courtesy for someone to say good morning or to say hello and honestly, they're safer if they do it, because if they do it, then they, what do they do? They look at the person in their eyes. They, you know, can see them rather than not even looking, mm-hmm. what I find. You can assess. Or, yeah, yeah, you can assess, and you can figure out very quickly, you know, am I safe? Am I, you know, do I keep walking? <laughs> Is this where I turn and run? But if you don't look, you can, you know, if they're not looking, they're not speaking, first of all, it's, it's not showing the person walking by you value. But it's also a safety, it could be a safety issue. So what I wanna say oftentimes is teach them to say, give them a greeting and keep walking. Teach them to say good morning, look them in the eye and smile and keep walking. Do not you don't have to stop, you don't have a conversation. But I feel like it's almost safer hmm. than you know, than not looking at them at all. Yeah. Not looking up or staying looking at your device or And then the other part of that is the understanding of how we interact with people. And, you know, Dr. John Dewey was a a famous American philosopher. And Dr. Dewey said the deepest need we have as human beings, uh, I say behind food and shelter, of course, is uh, the need to be important. Mm. And if we acknowledge someone, you know, whether that's a teacher in a school or a friend in the hallway, just smile or, you know, eye contact and maybe you can't talk in school. We don't want to to disobey any rules that school may have but an acknowledgement of people, um, you know then the acknowledgement often comes back. In other words, if you walk by someone and you don't speak, you don't look, uh, what you've just done is you've just taught that person that the next time they see you they probably won't acknowledge and uh, you. So it kind of devalues who you are. Mm. So the way I teach that to kids is to say, you know, your part of your self-confidence is um, your perception of what you think other people think of you, and part of that. And, um, and, you know, not all of the definition of self-confidence, of course, but so if that's the case, then you the more good you get back um the better it helps you to feel about yourself the more bad you get back you know than you know based on your interaction with people yeah so try it, to get more good to have that little bit of um confidence you know we have to give it to get it it's kind of like that you know you you give what you get um kind of thing yeah, yeah.
1: that mantra um, it's it's that social mirror idea that yeah you keep getting this reflection of what you are good or bad and and it you do we then we adopt it as part of our confidence we're speaking with Cynthia Grosso and she's walking us through um, just etiquette and a wonderful uh, website Charleston school of as she teaches us everything from table manners to really getting confident in who you are and how you respond to other human beings. Information matters, folks, and it matters for our self-esteem and our, our sense of confidence. We'll take a break, be back, give you more ideas. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Cynthia Grosso, and she's talking to us about how to use basic etiquette practices to benefit our personal lives, our professional lives, to increase our confidence. Cynthia Grosso, thank you so much for being with us today.
8: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: I know it's a sacrifice. And when I when I think of, um, like, my my sisters, I don't know why my grandma did this, but my sisters felt my, my grandma would— Wanted my sisters to learn. Um, they went to they went to a charm school <laughs> and etiquette school, and this was in Utah. I mean, I can imagine that in the South was a big deal, and and actually very beneficial to my sister. Um, but we but we all laugh about it because like it ended up really only being one sister that went, and uh, we we think we we don't know if it was because she was a favorite or she was just really in need, <laughs> and so talk about talk about but i it, it does give confidence i mean i remember her walking around the house that was in a different era but you know with balancing books on her head learning to sit up straight i went to a private school where we had to address the teacher and they taught us how to address the teacher when when we had to make a correction you know, um, am I correct in thinking that it should be two, not a four? And we would stand up when they would walk in the room. I mean, it's it, 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 it seems like these crazy little rules back in the day, but a lot of it, too, I mean, it, it does. I mean, your body posture changes your belief in yourself. A lot of this stuff gives you something at least to fall back on instead of just worry.
8: Right. Well, absolutely. Because again, if you know the the right thing to do, then you can be confident in that. You know, it it doesn't mean that you know somebody else will know, but it doesn't mean that everything will go your way. It just means that you, whatever happens, that you have the confidence that you handled it correctly or that you interacted correctly, and um, and there's a confidence in that. And uh, and so, yeah, and, and earlier, too, I was saying that, you know, uh, and I want to make sure I say that, you know, sometimes you can give good. I was trying to say that if you more good you can get back, and the way we get more good is to give it. It mm. doesn't always necessarily mean that if you're nice, somebody will be nice back right. to you. Um, I wish that was true, yeah. but it's not always true. But I try to tell them that if you're not, you know, if you give an attitude, then chances are that... Um, the, you'll get an attitude back, you know, and, and if, more chances than, than not. And, and in that attitude, which you've just taught them is it's okay for them to speak to you that way or in that moment when you give it and you get it back, you've just taught somebody else because people say, Oh, you teaching people how to interact with other people or how to treat other people. And I always want to say, no, 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 what I'm really teaching is how to treat yourself because every day you teach people how to treat you. Mm. And so it's not a hundred percent guarantee, of course not. Yeah, but you have a lot better chance.
6: <laughs>
1: yeah, it increases it's the nice. odds, doesn't it? <laughs> if we're going just for the odds game, it's 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 good it gets, for that.
8: Nice, that's right. It gets nice back. And the other thing I want to tell you about what you were saying about your sister having to go to charm school. You know, it's funny because when I do a program oftentimes the parents will tell me you know well my child really doesn't really want to go or we're making them do this and so sometimes kids come into the program you know not so happy or (laughs) i don't want to say kicking and screaming but right and by the end of the week especially our camp that we've had in the summertime that people from all over the world come we've had people from many countries come um and, and But, you know, at the end of the week, they're like, unbelievable. You know, the kids have had such a good time. They've learned so much. They've made good friends. It wasn't at all what they thought.
1: Yeah. Nobody so, died. You know. Hey, it's good. <laughs> but.
8: and so um, But it's funny because I hear that a lot. And yeah. so I get it. You know, I really do understand that that's not probably their big thing on their list, you know, but... Surprisingly, just like anything else, you know, oftentimes what we think is, um, in fact, not, not really true. In other words, it's not as horrifying. Yeah, <laughs> and actually pretty fun, and um, it's funny because I was at a, um, a, a meeting here in Charleston. And, um, it was a big meeting, and actually it was a Charleston Prayer breakfast, quite honestly and um it's a big city wide thing that they do once a year and anyways, but I ran into two of my former students, who of course, were now grown, and they came up and they said, "Miss Grosso," and I said, "Yes," and they told me their names, and I was like, "Oh my goodness and you know she he said to it was a sister and a brother, and uh, they both went at the same time. And he said, you know, we have often talked about how we really didn't want to go to camp that year, but how it was one of the best things we've ever done. Mm. And so that some of the stuff that you taught us, we still use today. And these, you know, I'm actually not exactly sure how old they were, because I don't remember exactly the year they came through, but I know they're at least in college.
1: Yeah. And, and, it, so and, and it works. It sticks. It does. It sticks. <laughs> Well Cindy we appreciate you uh, for doing it and keeping and keep up the good work there. Go everybody go check out Protocol.com and you can get more information about her uh, professional savvy series and an online learning program for professional table manners. Again, it'll help you at work, it'll help you in the family and confidence and something you can use the rest of your life.
2: You boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball!
1: Play ball, friends. Hey, welcome back. Four uh, life lessons here from Coach Matt on how to have more happiness in your life. Um, And uh, many were mentioned there by Andrea Corso. You got to be self-aware. One of the keys to happy people is they know where they fit in life, in the world. They they have enough self-awareness, and there's power in being a self-aware person. There's power in knowing what your strengths are, even knowing what your weaknesses are, not dwelling on your weaknesses, right, but, but knowing what they are so that you know how to gear your life forward. People that are self-aware tend to be more other-aware as well. Uh, if I can understand who I am, I understand my strengths, my weaknesses, my idiosyncrasies, Then I, too, can understand others. And so self-awareness simply just means you get you. How powerful would that be? I mean, you would think that being too self-aware might keep you from reaching out and doing things that are a little harder for you. But um, it also might make it so that you're, you're a little more forgiving. You understand uh, how to grow and how to be connected to you as a, as a person, as a being. Many of us, I, I believe, just are so trying to avoid any real connection to our own thinking, our own life, our own expectations, that we just maybe detach, we disconnect. And you're not going to get too far in life being profoundly disconnected from you. Make sense? In the end, you got to know you and you should appreciate you. Ask yourself some questions like what do you know about your own, you know, your own mood, your own uh, strengths, your weaknesses? What do you know about the food you should eat? How many of us are so not self-aware that we eat regular meals that actually make us sick or upset our bodies and yet we just keep eating them and we don't know why? But uh, it's just really good. If you're a self-aware person, you'd actually maybe be a little more attuned to what makes you feel good, what makes you happy, what motivates you. How do you um, impact others? As Andrea was talking earlier, self-aware people also have a, a better maybe insight into what they want to accomplish, how they want to leave the world, and how they want to to help give back to the world. One of the cool things I guess we could all be doing with our children would be teaching them about their feelings and and teaching them to be more self-aware. So you want to be happier? Learn to be more self-aware. Another is to learn to care. You know, care is defined as having feelings like concern, responsibility, love for someone, thought of others. Really, care means that uh, you feel a sense of responsibility or emotion for another person, and uh, who doesn't want to learn to care more? Happy people actually have emotions. They have passions. And uh, we've talked about on the show before, if you can dial in to your mission, your purpose, your passion in life, and you care about something, that is is—that is the – I believe, honestly, the door the to the key to the front door of happiness is having a passion for something. If you would, do you have a hobby or um, a, a love of something that you would do just because it's it's just fun to do? do? You now, what if you could turn that into a career or into something that you could spend a lot of time doing? I mean, I know I know people that make they love doing woodwork and wood carving, and they they. They love it. It's just what they do. They come home from work and they get right into the shop and start working wood and carving it. And um, it was powerful. It was a fun thing. But he realized he was just escaping from the world until he realized that he could actually carve things that he could give to people. So then he started carving and doing his woodwork for others. And the minute he shared it with others, it became something that that actually induced or created in him even more passion. We can care about a lot of things, by the way. We can care about thoughts. We can care about things. We can care about people. We can care about, uh, you know, a lot of powerful things. And once you know what you, can, what you care about most, then you can start to offer that. One of the things we might want to share with our kids is help them understand how to share, how to care and give to others. Let them learn to, to do things where passion and emotions are there. Actually, if they would rather play one sport over another, what if you just went with their emotion? Let them go where their emotions take them. Oh, well, yeah, but then they'll just they'll just lollygag around. Maybe, or maybe they'll actually find a passion for something. How about another uh, key to happy people is learning to dare. So we've gotta be aware, we've gotta learn to care, and we've gotta learn to dare. Sometimes we are so afraid, aren't we? We don't want the risk. We don't want the feedback. We don't want uh, we don't want the growth. We don't want the risk. We need to be teaching our kids to risk a little bit more, to dare a little bit more. Many, many clients that I see uh tend to be millennials, twenty-somethings, who just are failing to thrive. They have no passion, they have nothing they seem to care about. They don't. Some of them don't have self-awareness, and some of them don't seem to dare to try anything new. They just stay in their little incubator. And as parents, we don't need to make their life miserable, but we do need to push daring. Let kids leave home. Don't be as uh, afraid for your kids. The minute you start reflecting how dangerous this world is, guess what they start to pick up? Boy, I better not get out there. Help your kids learn to dare. Make your kids go ask for their own Help. Make them confront the teacher that's, that they have to go retake a test with. Don't you, you know, set it up for them. How powerful is that when they have to learn to dare and to risk and to extend? What if we could create more opportunities for each of us to fail? I mean, it's funny. This uh, whole radio gig is kind of a midlife crisis for me. It's It's something I started – I mean, I I had training in it younger, but I've been doing it the last 10 years of my life. So really since 37 on, it's a whole new growth cycle for me. And it's easier, honestly, to just go back to what I used to do. It'd be so much easier. But there's something about it when all of a sudden you dare to grow, you dare to learn, opens up new channels, opens up new life. So do you, are you happy? Because if not, probably you need to be more self-aware. You need to find someone to care for and you need to dare. And last but not least, you probably need to share. Share means we divide, we distribute. Share means that we, we partake of, we experience, we occupy, we enjoy things with others, we have in common things with others. We share. Are you very good at sharing your thoughts? Oh, yes, I love to just share my thoughts. Are you very good at listening and letting others share theirs? Every human being wants to learn and grow, and uh, what if we could help by just sharing what we learned today? One of the great things I love about the show is I learn something every day that I go and share. I cannot tell you how many times I'm with people and I'm saying, well, man, a funny thing on the show, I was talking to so-and-so about this. Just little pieces every single day of information, of facts that I can share with people, and so can you. Sharing. Do you create create opportunities in your world, in your life, to share more? Well, I don't I don't want to be annoying. Well, you're not annoying. If you're a parent, your job is to share. Your job is to teach. What if when our kids come home from school, we ask them to share? We get stuck in their minds and their heads that every day you're going to teach us something. What did you learn at school today? Just give us what you learned. They'll always say, I'm nothing. I don't know. I don't know, Dad. And I always just smile and say, well, sure you do. You were at school, and so we're not going to stop until you start to share. It's an interesting life, isn't it? And if happiness comes from those intersections, the intersections where we share, the intersections where we care about things, the intersections where we dare to risk and stick our heads out a bit, and the intersection where we are self-aware, there's some powerful life uh, growth that happens. And the biggest thing about growth is it tends to foster happiness. One of the crazy truths they're learning in positive psychology is this idea that there is a little bit of stress that's necessary. You need to have some stress in your life in order to create a sense of well-being. Humans inherently are going to uh, push for more and more um, happiness, more and more opportunity, more and more taking advantage of life. And that little bit of stress uh, of the risk, of the dare, of the share, of the care ends up taking us to a different level in our lives. If we always are trying to have um, and an avoid such stressor that we never share, we never learn, we never grow, we never develop, then we actually also will never feel happiness. Happiness must coexist with its opposite which might be stress, which might be a little unsettled feeling, uh, fear. So don't run away from it. It's just life. It's life. Nobody died from learning and growing and developing. And know, too, there's a lot of people behind you.